Chapters 27 of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arthur Piantadosi. Chapter 27 atones for the unpoliteness of a former chapter, which deserted a lady most unceremoniously. As it would be by no means seemingly in a humble author to keep so mighty a personage as a beetle waiting, with his back to the fire and the skirts of his coat gathered up under his arms, under such time as it might suit his pleasure to relieve him, and as it would still less become his station or his gallantry to involve in the same neglect the lady on whom the beetle had looked with an eye of tenderness and affection, and in whose ear it whispered sweet words which, coming from such a quarter, might well thrill the bosom of maid or matron of whatsoever degree. Historian who has penned traces these words, trusting that he knows his place, and that he entertains a becoming reverence for those upon earth to whom high and important authority is delegated, hastens to pay them that respect which their position demands, and to treat them with all that due to his ceremony which is their exalted rank, and by consequence great virtues imperatively claim at his hands. Toward this end, indeed, he had purported to introduce in this place a dissertation touching the divine right of beetles, an elucidative of the position that a beetle can do no wrong, which could not fail to have been both pleasurable and profitable to the right-minded reader, but which he is unfortunately compelled, by want of space and time, to postpone to some more convenient and fitting opportunity on the arrival of which he will be prepared to show that a beetle properly constituted, that is to say, a parochial beetle, attached to a parochial workhouse and attending in his official capacity the parochial church, is, in right and virtue of his office, possessed of all the excellences and best qualities of humanity, and that to none of these excellences can mere companies beetle or courts of law beetles or even chapels of ease beetles save the last and they in a very low and inferior degree lay the remotest sustainable claim mr bumble had recounted the teaspoons weighed the sugar-tongs made a closer inspection of the milk-pot and ascertained to a nicety the exact condition of the furniture, down to the very horsehair seats of the chairs, and had repeated each process full half a dozen times, before he began to think that it was time for Mrs. Corney to return. Thinking begets thinking, and as there were no sounds of Mrs. Corney's approach, it occurred to Mr. Bumble that it would be an innocent, virtuous way of spending the time if he were further to allay his curiosity by a cursory glance at the interior of Miss Corney's chest of drawers. Having listened to the keyhole, he had to assure himself that nobody was approaching the chamber, Mr. Bumble, beginning at the bottom, began to make himself acquainted with the contents of the three long drawers, which, being filled with various garments of good fashion and texture, carefully preserved between two layers of old newspapers, speckled with dried lavender, seemed to yield to him exceeding satisfaction. Arriving in course of time at the right-hand corner drawer, in which was the key, beholding therein a small padlocked box, which being shaken, gave forth a pleasant sound as of the clinking of coin. 
Mr. Bumble returned with a stately walk to the fireplace, and resuming his old attitude, said with a grave and determined air, I'll do it. He followed up his remarkable declaration by shaking his head in a waggish manner for ten minutes, as though he were remonstrating with himself for being such a pleasant dog. And then he took a view of his legs in profile, with much seeming pleasure and interest. He was still placidly engaged in this later survey, when Mrs. Corney, hurrying into the room, threw herself in a breathless state on a chair by the fireside, and covering her eyes with one hand, placed the other over her heart and grasped her breath. Mrs. Corney, said Mr. Bumble, stooping over the matron, what's this, ma'am? Has anything happened, ma'am? Please answer me. I'm on, on. Mr. Bumble, in his alarm, could not immediately think of the word tendocks, so he said, broken bottles. Oh, Mr. Bumble, cried the lady, I've been so dreadfully put out. Put out, ma'am, exclaimed Mr. Bumble. Who has dared to? I know, said Mr. Bumble, checking himself with native majesty. It is his ambitious paupers. It's dreadful to think of. Said the lady, shuddering. Then don't think of it, ma'am, rejoined Mr. Bumble. I can't help it, said the lady. Then take something, ma'am, said Mr. Bumble soothingly. A little of the wine? Not for the world, said I, Mrs. Corning. I couldn't. Oh, the top shelf in the red corner. Oh! Uttering these words, the good lady pointed distractedly to the cupboard and underwent a convulsion from internal spasms. Mr. Bumble rushed to the closet and, snatching a pint-green glass bottle from the shelf thus incoherently indicated, filled a keycup with its contents and held it to the lady's lips. "'I'm better now,' said Mrs. Corley, falling back after drinking half of it. Mr. Bumble raised his eyes piously to the ceiling in thankfulness, and bringing them down again to the brim of the cup, lifted it to his nose. "'Peppermint!' exclaimed Mrs. Corney in a open voice, smiling gently on the beetle as he spoke. "'Try it! There's a little... a little something else in it!' Mr. Bumble tasted the medicine with a doubtful look, smacked his lips, took another taste, and pulled the cup down, empty. It's very comforting, said Mrs. Corney. That much so indeed, ma'am, said the beetle. As he spoke, he drew a chair beside the matron and tenderly inquired what had happened to distress her. Nothing, replied Mrs. Corney. I'm a foolish, excitable, weak creature. Not weak, ma'am, retorted Mr. Bumble, drawing his chair a little closer. Are you a weak creature, Mrs. Corney? We are weak creatures, said Mrs. Corney, laying down a general principle. So we are, said the beetle. Nothing was said on either side for a minute or two afterwards. By the expiration of that time, Mr. Bumble had illustrated the position by removing his left arm from the back of Mrs. Corney's chair, where it had previously rested, to Mrs. Corney's apron string round which it gradually became entwined. We are all weak creatures, said Mr. Bumble. Mrs. Corney sighed. <sighs> Don't sigh, Mrs. Corney, said Mr. Bumble. I can't help it, said Mrs. Corney. 
She sighed again. This is a very comfortable room, ma'am, said Mr. Bumble, looking round. Another room and this, ma'am, would be a complete thing. Would be too much for one, murmured the lady. But not for two, ma'am, rejoined Mr. Bumble in soft accents. Hey, Mrs. Corney. Mrs. Corney drew up to her head when the Bertil said this. The Dreedle drew up tears to get a view of Mrs. Corney's face. Mrs. Corney, with great propriety, turned her head away, and released her hand to get it as her pocket handkerchief, but was insensibly replaced in it that of Mr. Bumble. The board allows you goes, don't they, Mrs. Corney? inquired the beadle, affectionately pressing her hand. And candles, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Corney, uh, I, returning the pressure. Oh, candles and house rent-free, said Mr. Bumble. Oh, Mrs. Corney, what an angel you are. The lady was not proof against this burst of feeling. She sank into Mr. Bumble's arms, and that gentleman, in his agitation, imprinted a passionate kiss upon his chaste nose. What parochial perfection, exclaimed Mr. Bumble rapturously. You know that Mr. Sloat is worse tonight, my fascinator. Yes, replied Mrs. Corney, bashfully. He can't live a week, the doctors say, pursued Mr. Bumble. He is the master of this establishment. His death will cause a vacancy. That vacancy must be filled up. Oh, Mrs. Corney, what a prospect that opens. What an opportunity for a joining of arts and housekeepings. Mrs. Corney sobbed. The little word, said Mr. Bumble, pending over the bashful beauty. The one little, little, little word, my blessed Corney. Yes, sighed out the matron. One more, pursued the beetle. Oppose your darling feelings for only one more. When is it to come off? Mrs. Corney twice essayed to speak and twice failed. I think, summoning up courage, she threw her arms around Mr. Bumble's neck and said it might be as soon as ever he pleased and that he was uh, irresistible dark. Matters thus amicably and satisfactorily arranged. The contract was solemnly ratified in another teacupful of the peppermint mixture, which was rendered the more necessary by the flattering agitation of the lady's spirits. While it was being disposed of, she acquainted Mr. Bumble with the old woman's decease. Very good, said that gentleman, seeping his peppermint. All call at Sarbury's as I go home, and tell him to send tomorrow morning. Was it that as frightening as you, love? It wasn't anything particular, dear, said the lady evasively. It must have been something, love, urged Mr. Bumble. Won't you tell your own bee? Not now, rejoined the lady. One of these days, after we're married, dear. After we're married, exclaimed Mr. Bumble. It wasn't any impudence for many of them male paupers as... No, no, love. Those a lady hastily. If I thought it was, continued Mr. Bumble, if I thought as any one of them had dared to lift his vulgar eyes to that lovely countenance. 
I wouldn't dare to do it, love, responded the lady. Oh, I'd better not, said Mr. Bumble, clutching his fist. Let me see any man parochial or extra-parochial as was presumed to do it, and I can tell him that he wouldn't do it a second time. Unembellished by any violence of gesticulation, this might have seemed no very high compliment to the lady's charms. But as Mr. Bumble accompanied the threat with many warlike gestures, she was as much touched by this proof of his devotion, and protested with great admiration that he was indeed a dove. The dove then turned up his coat collar and put on his cocked hat, and having exchanged long and affectionate phrase for his future partner, once again braved the cold wind of the night, merely pausing for a few minutes in the male pauper's ward to abuse them a little, with a view of satisfying himself that he could feel the office of workhouse master with a needful acerbity. Assured of his qualifications, Mr. Bumble left the building with a light heart, and bright visions of his future promotion, which served to occupy his mind until he reached the shop of the undertaker. Now Mr. and Mrs. Sabre, having gone out to tea and supper, Noah Claypole, not being at any time disposed to take upon himself a greater amount of physical exertion than is necessary to a convenient performance of the two functions of eating and drinking, the shop was not closed, although it was past the usual hour of shutting up. Mr. Bumble tapped with his cane on the counter several times, but attracting no attention and upholding a light shining up through the glass window of the little parlour at the back of the shop, he made bold to peep in and see what was going on forward, and when he saw what was going forward, he was not a little surprised. The cloth was laid for supper, the table was covered with bread and butter, plates and glasses, a porter pot and a wine bottle. At the upper end of the table, Mr. Noah Claypole lolled negligently in an easy chair, with his legs thrown over one of the arms, an open clasp knife in one hand and a mass of buttered bread in the other. Close beside him stood Charlotte, opening oysters from a barrel, which Mr. Claypole condescended to swallow with remarkable avidity. A more than ordinary redness in the region of the young gentleman's nose, and a kind of fixed wink in his right eye, denoted that he was in a slight degree intoxicated. These symptoms were confirmed by the intense relish with which he took his oysters well, which nothing but a strong appreciation of their cooling properties in cases of internal fever could have sufficiently accounted. Here's a delicious fat one, Noah, dear, said Charlotte. Try him, too, only this one. What a delicious thing is an oyster, remarked Mr. Paypole after it swallowed it. What a pity it does, a number of them should ever make you feel uncomfortable, isn't it, Charlotte? It's quite a cruelty, said Charlotte. So it is, asked, asked Mr. Claypole. Ain't you fond of oysters? Not over much, replied Charlotte. I'd like to see you eat them, Noah, dear, better than eating them myself. Lord, said Noah, reflectively. How queer. Have another, said Charlotte. Here's one with such a beautiful, delicate beard. I can't manage any more, said Noah. I'm very sorry. Come here, child, and I'll kiss you. What? said Mr. Bumble, bursting in the room. 
Say that again, sir. Charlotte uttered a scream and hid her face in her apron. Mr. Claypole, without making any further change in his position and suffering his legs to reach the ground, gazed at the beetle in drunken terror. Say it again, you wild, audacious fellow, said Mr. Bumble. How dare you mention such a thing, sir? And how dare you encourage him, you insolent minx? Kiss her! exclaimed Mr. Bumble in strong indignation. Four! I didn't mean to do it, said uh, Blubbery. She's always a-kissing me, whether I like it or not. Oh, no, ah, cried Charlotte reproachfully. You are, you know you are, retorted Noah. She's always a do it, Mr. Bumble, sir. She chops me under the chin, please, sir, and makes all manner of love. Silence! cried Mr. Bumble sternly. Take yourself downstairs, ma'am. No, you shut up the shop, say another word to your master comes home at your peril. And when he does come home, tell him that Mr. Bumble said he was to send an old woman's shell out of breakfast tomorrow morning. Do you hear, sir? Kissing! cried Mr. Bumble, throwing up his hands. The fin and wickedness of the lower orders in this parochial district is frightful. The Parliament don't take their abominable courses under consideration. The country's ruin, and the character of the peasantry gone forever. With these words, the beetles strode with a lofty and gloomy air from the undertaker's premises. And now that we have accompanied him so far on his road home, and have made all the necessary preparations for the old woman's funeral, let us set on foot a few inquirers after young Oliver Twist, as ascertain whether he be still lying in the ditch where Toby Crackett left him. End of chapter 27